Hey, welcome to Eat Crime Bites, Season 1, Episode 17, and we're calling this one, as of right now, Three Officers, Three Schemes, only because Two Girls, One Cup came up to mine, and this is the closest I could get it, so that's why I chose that's, this. That's <laughs> some reference, my friend. Oh my God, Wonders <laughs> alienated half of our audience. Or, or we gained a bunch, depends on how you look at it, Seth. Yeah, I'm going to go with the latter, the former on that. That one was. All right. So let's go ahead and start our case details. Like we always do the technology in here. I think we've talked about both of these, at least in prior episodes. First one is going to be your personally identifiable information. And you're going to hear Seth and I, if you're joining us for the first time, you're going to hear Seth and I saying the letters P I I a lot in this episode and other episodes. And that's what this means is things like date of birth, name, social security number, address, all that kind of stuff that you need to basically make a digital picture of a person. And the other piece that we're going to talk about is law enforcement databases. And you can think of these as databases that police officers and other investigative agencies can use for investigative good purposes. But when officers go bad, they can also use the same data that's in there for bad purposes. And that's what we're going to describe in this episode is a couple of officers that turned to the dark side and started stealing information from these databases. I think about crown jewels for the hacker world. This is the lucky charms pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's generally, I think, a working assumption and a social contract that in the hands of law enforcement, things are safe. As Keith said, if law enforcement kind of break bad, it's actually potentially catastrophic. But I think it's interesting in this case, what went on, which is more of a gentle or more subtle approach to try to make a buck and have a victimless crime kind of thing. Not that I'm saying it was victimless. Ultimately, the U.S. taxpayers were the, uh, the victims here amongst the other ones we listed. But anyway, in terms of the crime, so we have identity theft for sure. As we mentioned, fraudulent tax filings, which is something we've seen now at least once. Did we see it twice, Keith? Yep. And you know, we've it, seen it a I, bunch, I, and, and we'll definitely be seeing it more. <laughs> frankly, as a former tax attorney, although it's been many, many years since I've been in that space, it's one of those things where I never would have thought that would be such an obvious target. Obviously, people cheat on their taxes, and there's a lot of tax fraud out there. But the idea of creating a tax return that shouldn't exist or filing it in somebody's name when they never actually filed it. It is something I find very interesting and something I never would have thought about, but I'm not a crook. And then anyway, in terms of crime, the protection for fraudulent check cashing service, which we'll get into a little bit later on in the show. So the criminals here, we have three officers, like I said at the beginning, one of them is a Florida Department of Corrections officer. So you can think of like an officer that manages prisons and jails like that. And then we have two Miami, Florida police officers. And it's not really clear from the court paperwork if they knew each other. Some of the schemes are similar, so I think maybe they knew each other, but there was nothing in there that said that they definitely did know each other. So in terms of the victims, we have a Department of Correction inmates, right? We have Florida citizens. I would argue if these were tax returns at the federal level, obviously U.S. taxpayers are technically victims since it's coming out of their collective pocket. So yeah, lots of victims here. Keith, tell us why we're talking about this case today. Okay. If you're joining us and you've just listened to our full episodes and haven't paid attention to these nibbles that I've been releasing in between episodes, this was one of the first nibbles that I created and I released and I got huge response from it. When I put it on YouTube and so forth, I got like thousands of views and people commenting on it. And so when I was looking for a new case to research, I'm, this is a process that I'm going to do from now on. I'm going to go back to pick out the most popular nibbles that we published and develop the case more fully. So the reason why I chose this case is it was one of the largest responses that I got for I don't know, 30 or 40 nibbles we're up to now. And so then I just picked the top one and thought you'd enjoy it. So there you go. Enjoy. And this, in case you were keeping track, this is actually nibble number one, the very first one that I released. So with that, sit back and we will get right into the case right after our song. 
Hey, welcome back to E-Crime Bites, Season 1, Episode 17, Three Officers, Three Schemes. So we're going to get into our first officer right away. And this officer was the Department of Corrections officer. His name is Bernard Belliard. Is that how you pronounce it, Seth? Sure. Belliard? All right. So he's a Florida Department of Corrections officer. And you can imagine as a corrections officer, you have, since you're managing people, you have access to their information. You're in custody of people. So you're going to have access to their information. And so these cases that we're going to present to you, they were pretty much independent cases, but they were all prosecuted and investigated at the same time. And they all start out the same way. I have a feeling they, they knew that these people were not on the up and up and they all started out the same way, which is just a confidential informant that works for the FBI going up to this officer and saying, you want to make some money. And from there, the schemes differ. So the confidential informant tells Belliard that he will pay $1,000 for every 50 names plus social security numbers. And if you're not in the U.S. and you don't know what a social security number, it's just this, what is it? It's three plus two plus four. So that's nine digits that identifies you in the U.S. And it's used on a lot of identification documents for mortgage documents, a lot of times setting up cell phones, pretty much anything where you have credit, your social security number will be attached to it in some way. Yeah, it's an identifier. It's part of a social program so that ostensibly when you retire, every working dollar you earn, taxes are paid in so that when you retire, you get essentially government pension to pay you a living wage or that's not even accurate really, but government money for retirement. But it is obviously a ubiquitous source of personally identifiable information. It's one of the crown jewels, I would say, for hackers for using it for, I guess, falsifying identification. How do I know it's Seth Eichenhoff? So, Here's a Soch. So Belliard agreed to provide the PII to the confidential informant. And I didn't mention the date up front, but this is October 23rd of 2012 that this meeting happened between Belliard and this confidential informant that's working for the FBI. So there's your initial crime there. Okay, so I'll take this one, Keith. So the week after this, the confidential informant calls Belliard. Call was recorded, and Belliard tells the informant 104, as in he was able to obtain 104 individuals' personally identifiable information. We'll call it PII for short. So the informant tells Belliard that he would be paid from a percentage of the fraudulent tax returns filed in there or the PII's names. Now, that's interesting because that's not from what he was originally told. He just changed the deal. First, it was going to be, you know, I guess technically he should have received a little over $2,000 if he got $1,000 for every 50 names. But then he was like, no, 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 you'll get a piece of the fraudulent tax returns. Now, that might have been in Belliard's favor if the tax returns were for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but what was the percentage? This is why I could never be a criminal. I would never tolerate such a change in my deal. <laughs> so let's see. It would be two days later. Belliard meets with the informant. They meet at a Walgreens in Miami-Dade County. Belliard provides the informant with packets of Department of Corrections daily intake lists, which has names, dates of births, and social security numbers of inmates. This isn't something that the inmates willingly handed over to somebody and, you know, right. it, it got out of hand. This, this is, is an abuse they're of incarcerated. Power. This is, an this abuse is of they're power incarcerated. So that's why their information is in the department of corrections. And this officer who's an insider gone bad has access to it. And now he's trying to make money off of it. So the informant paid $1,200 to Belliard for 102 names and Belliard claimed to have removed two names and I couldn't figure out why, but there was like some big thing between him and the informant. I couldn't tell if it was, he wasn't paid enough. So he took a couple names out or if he looked at a couple names and said, I shouldn't have put these in here or what it was, but it was enough that it was in the court paperwork that I thought I would. Yeah. We I'd could mention. conjecture on that all day. It could be because those were two guys he didn't want to upset who were part of the inmate <laughs> crew. 
or whatever. What I find interesting, again, and not to repeat myself, but the deal was 50 names, $1,000. So he gave him 102 names and got $1,200. I feel like he's $1,000 off here. And it's just a larger pattern that, Keith, we have seen where the people who are the pivot to be able to actually have the crime committed are way underpaid. Oh, wait, wait, Seth, this guy, this guy is rolling in it compared to the last guy that we talked about. So stick around to the end because the amount he's worse than the guy at the end is worse than Steiner. I'll put it that way. So when the informant paid him, got the names, the informant then went, Hey, FBI got these and handed it over to the FBI. So the FBI is now making a case against Belliard. So now we flash forward to the following week. So two weeks forward. So now we're in late 2012, November the 6th. So the informant now wants to purchase another hundred names. So he and Belliard arranged to meet again the next day. So again, they used Walgreens because if he happens to need to buy some pharmaceuticals, you're right there. And <laughs> Belliard did provide another 102 names for 1200. So question, Keith, why would it be exactly 102 names? Why not 106 or 98? Why, why 102? I found that weird. Yeah, I thought it was really weird too. And it was never like the, the mounts and the names never really matched up or correlated. So I'm wondering if it was like, Hey, you gave me 102, but I only have a $1,200 on me. He decides to take it. And maybe there was promise of additional money because remember now it was first, the promise was for money for names. And then it was like, actually, you're going to get a piece of this. You'll get paid when we actually file the tax returns, but maybe it was both. So it's a little unclear as to what the formalized deal was. It doesn't really matter since Belliard was clearly a co-conspirator at this point. Yeah. And at this point, Belliard and the confidential informant, they start, they communicate over text messages. And this is between November 7th of 2012 and November 26th of 2012. And I'm not going to read you all of it, but basically I'm going to give you the gist and then give you the last punchline, which is he's basically saying, Hey, I got a whole bunch more stuff, but do you want to buy it from me? Because I don't really want to do this forever is how I read this communication. And Belliard basically ended this conversation with, I was looking forward to at least a stack for my birthday party this Saturday. And in the core paperwork, if you've never heard that term before, a stack is a thousand dollars. I didn't know so, that. So I've heard of fat yeah, stacks, so it's, but I've never heard of, I didn't know that it had a specific monetary amount to it. Oh yeah. Not to sound like an old dad or anything, but stacks are referenced in new current music nowadays you hear them talk about stacks and they're talking about a thousand dollars there seth so <laughs> it's like a, a flip fat, right there yeah is a fat stack like a ten thousand dollar kind of thing or a five thousand dollar stack oh I'll, i don't I'll know i'm on urban on urban dictionary yeah 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 so now we're about we're about two months now into this relationship between belliard and the ci confidential informant. So at the end of November, around Thanksgiving of 2012, there's another purchase. So the court documents state that on or about November 28, 2012, the confidential informant placed a recorded call to Belliard. Belliard, remember, is our police officer or a corrections officer, rather. So during the call, the confidential informant told Belliard that he or she, I don't know why it says he or she, because oh, we don't know if it's all right, the confidential informant is clearly confidential was ready to take, quote, the 200. I'm assuming they mean 200 names. So arrangements were made to meet on November 30th, two days later, to exchange list three for cash payment. Belliard responded, quote, if we do, my daughter would have a wonderful birthday. I think that's important, Keith, because he can't claim that he didn't know what he was doing or didn't know what he was getting into. So the informant purchased another 201 names, and they meet, as usual, at the Walgreens. I think they'd want to mix up their meeting. No shit. And this time, Belliard was paid $2,400. I still feel like he's being underpaid because it's supposed to be $1,000 for every 50 names. But what do I know? So if we fast forward to December 9th through about January 4th of 2013, this is the last purchase in this scheme with Belliard. And he basically, again, starts texting his partner in crime, which is the confidential informant, 
asking if he would want to buy some more names. And Bellier basically said, now I have 500 plus names. And then he said, yeah, let's link up tomorrow for the 400. And he says, okay, that's good. But I really need a stack today. A stack being a thousand dollars. Not to be confused uh, with a fat stack of which we don't know how much that is. And the one thing I love for the court paperwork here is I didn't read it. It actually says SMH. And then they explain everything in court paperwork. There's a sentence right afterwards. It literally says your affiant is aware that SMH is text shorthand for shaking my head. Yeah. All right. All right. If I'll just continue on with the yeah. last purchase here, Seth. And now it's January. So he must've gotten his fat stack or something. And it's January and there's another recorded call. And basically they arranged to meet at the Walgreens drugstore that they met previously. They didn't shake things up. They went back to the same drugstore, and now it's for a lot more names than it was the last three times. So they exchanged the 400 names for $4,800, which is getting, I guess, closer to the amount. And what happens? Fucking FBI rolls in. (laughs) interviews them right afterward. And they're like, dear sir, why do you have $4,800 in your pocket? Which would be the equivalent of almost five stacks. Exactly. And what do you do at that point? What do you do? He just, he admitted knowing that the list he provided in exchange for cash were going to be used for tax fraud at that point. It was just, he was caught literally red-handed with cash in his pocket at a goddamn Walgreens. If I get caught at something, I don't want to get caught at Walgreens. No, there's better pharmaceuticals to get caught at. All right. So we know a short time later, this didn't take long. Within a few months, Mr. Belliard pleads guilty. He didn't really have much of a defense here. They waived the indictment and he pled guilty to two charges. One, possess 15 or more unauthorized access devices, which is social, basically PII, in this case, social security numbers. But there were several other things. And then they transferred those PII to another person. It was way more than 15, by the way. They could have got him 100 times over on this. He was sentenced to 54 months so total. And that was 30 months as to count one and 24 months as to count two. And they were consecutive, not concurrent. He also, yeah, so he had to surrender later that summer. So he got a $200 assessment and a fine of $1,000. And that's important because we've seen some of these sentencing. The assessment doesn't mean anything. And the fine can always be pretty de minimis, right? But there is no restitution here, which is actually a win because that means when he comes out, he doesn't have to start paying back some ungodly amount of money, you know, $500,000, $5 million, which is no way an ex-convict, unless he's like some crazy white collar criminal for genius, is ever going to be able to repay that. So he actually got a fairly light sentence, but he'll be doing outside of early release, whatever, the better part of, I guess, almost six years, five and a half years. And he has a year of supervised release too, after he gets out. Yeah. So not great. So let's meet our next person here. This is a picture of Malinsky Bazile. I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that right. That's how I do it. And Malinsky is one of the Miami-Dade, Florida police officers. And you probably, I said earlier how some of these officers were caught. This is an interesting tangent I found in the court paperwork. So stick with me here. Malinsky Bazile, police officer, his stepbrother, John Bep, is it Baptiste or Baptiste? Baptiste. Charles. I'm just going to call him Charles. That's his last name. So let's talk about Charles first, because that's what set the ball rolling here. Charles was pulled over by a detective on March 11th of 2011. Inside this rental car, he had several money order receipts. He had $4,616 in cash. I never carry cash, Seth. I don't even know if I've had $4,000 in my hand in cash before. That's amazing. 10 prepaid debit cards, okay? And you would say, well, maybe he's got a lot of accounts. Yes, he does. Registered to other people. So when he's caught, and later on, I'll jump the gun a little bit here. Each person was interviewed at a later date and said 
did you have cards and did you authorize Charles to have them in his possession? And they all said, no, no, I definitely did not order these cards and give them to a random police officer to hold with all the other people's cards. So then detectives looked a little further and they found 25 different people's tax refund loaded on the cards, totaling around $31,000. And if you missed some of our earlier episodes where we've talked about these tax refund schemes, a lot of times the criminals will get their funds from the fraudulent claims on prepaid debit cards. And that's what it sounds like he has in his wallet in other people's names, which is totally not good. Now, he could just say, ah, they accidentally fell into my wallet. But the investigators, they did further investigation and they found that numerous ATM withdrawals came out of those debit cards. So he didn't just have them. He used them. He is the stepbrother of the officer, Malinsky Bazil, that we were talking about earlier. As they're doing their investigation, one of the things they probably say is, where does this guy live? As they're doing the investigation, they go, oh my God, he lives with one of our officers, Officer Bazil. That's odd. Yeah, so that triggered the investigators to start looking at Bazil as well. And by the way, I just want to pause. You'd think he'd want to maybe launder the money better, right? So like any other crime, follow the money, right? So if you're pulling out money from fraudulent tax returns that have been filed into a prepaid debit card and then you're cashing in that cash, I don't know how I would do it, but I'd want to think there's several layers in between that before it gets to me. You know what I mean? I would even try to have some rando do it and then give me cash rather than go to an ATM. I mean, it's too connected. It's I guess that's why they got caught. Anyway, all right. And, so I, pro- yeah, and I probably wouldn't, as an officer, live with my stepbrother, who you probably would know is into this stuff at this point. Yeah. Oh, then it might be arguably a duty to report that person, which makes it an awkward dinner party for a Christmas. Internal affairs investigated Bazile's computer activity. Don't forget, he was a cop, so they had the ability to do that. And they discovered that he ran over a thousand people's PII in the Florida Department of Highway and Safety Vehicle Driver License Record Database. That's called, it's a long acronym, but it's basically David for sure. Basically, similar to the Department of Corrections intake forms, this is a golden goose location for PII. Thousand people's PII were readily available as probably a printout or an export. So the database provides law enforcement, assumedly only law enforcement, with names, dates of birth, and Keith, wait for it, social security numbers. Oh, yeah. So Bazile ran the names of three of 10 individuals for whom Charles possessed debit cards. So now Internal Affairs attaches a keystroke logger on his work laptop. Keith, you want to tell us what a keystroke logger is? Sure thing. So as you're putting your fingers on your keyboard, you're typing things that sometimes aren't really seen on a computer, like your usernames, your passwords, your credit cards, and so forth. So one way you can get all that information, even if you're taking a video of somebody's screen and you can't see these passwords and credit cards and stuff, is by putting something called a keystroke logger on. And it's nothing more than something either software or hardware that sits in between your keyboard and your computer, like the, the operating system, like your web browser or whatever you're doing on your computer. So internal affairs put this either physical device or software device on his computer and can see everything that he's typing from there forward. And it's important to note this is his work laptop too. So he can't just say, I left it there and somebody I knew just happened to use it because work laptops like this, you have to use a username and password to log in. It's just, it's not just any Joe Schmo that can log into this police officer's laptop. Later that month, so end of June of 2012, more on Bazile's search queries. We know that he was searching a specific set of cadences. And it's funny, now 11 years later, this works really well with a generative AI chat GPT set of queries. But So fairly advanced. His criteria for search were 
He was looking for females between this is again on that David database that, you know, is Florida law enforcement females between 57 and 61 and had the first name beginning with the letters A through C and had the last name of Rogers. So you can imagine that's a fairly ubiquitous name. There's probably a couple of thousand people who live in Florida with the last name of Rogers. And then if you want to get a little more granular, you know, who falls into the category of A, being a female, B, being between the ages of 57 and 61, and C, having a first name beginning with A through C. And when he clicked on several profiles, he then had access to a person's name, their date of birth, social security number, and various other bits of PII. And when filling out the required reason for field of inquiry, I guess that's a log that is required by that law enforcement database so they have some record of what were you searching for? He said dispatch. And I'm not a cop, but I think dispatch means that it's an officer on duty who is coming back to dispatch to confirm a license plate number or a car that may or may not be stolen or some standard catch-all for having them pull something up, even though at the time Bazil was on vacation, which is problematic. Yeah, you would think officers would go, there's probably a log of this somewhere that I'm not working, but probably didn't click. And it was 10 years ago, so maybe they didn't, it wasn't as front of mind as it is in 2023. So he just continues on with a bunch of more queries. And it's basically, it's like a dating wish list. It's Florida for him, for females, Florida, age 57 to 61. And then he would vary things like the first name would be B, C, or D. And then the last name would be. Sanders, Martinez, or Gonzalez, or Lopez, or Harrison. Let's he was basically brute forcing combinations. Well, but let's pause on that. What's the commonality, Keith, between all the last names he used? They're extremely common names. Yeah, he didn't look at, yeah. he wasn't looking for Eichenholz. He was looking for Jones. <laughs> he was looking, so that's yeah, he was looking for Joneses. He was looking for a Sanders, right? Fairly common. Martinez, I'm sure, given South Florida's population, is plenty of people with that last name. Similar for Gonzalez and Lopez. Harrison, fairly common, right? If you just pick up an old-fashioned phone book, you probably have hundreds, if not thousands of people, you know, who hit those categories. So there was no shortage of names to pull from here. It does. This is how all these schemes with tax fraud tend to work is somebody has to get the data. So now they have the data, right? Got to file the tax returns in order to get the money from the data that you just pulled. When they did the investigation, just like they did in the first officer's case, they took a look at the PII they had access to and what was actually fraudulently filed so they could lay out the evidence of showing that the data was captured and then the data was used and then money was gained from that data. You and you're see. learning that, yeah, I'm sorry, Keith, go ahead. I interrupted you. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say one at the last case, we were wondering the last case we had that involved fraudulent tax returns, what income were they reporting that would even be available that would then trigger a refund of phantom money? I think this case probably provides a pretty good blueprint for how they did it. They filed it based upon, so in the, in the court documents, the eight returns that were listed under a specific search recorded similar income of unemployment compensation of a modest amount. I hear it was $6,500. And then the returns had also filed identically, which was not slick, refunds of $1,700. And the reason why I find that interesting is it's a nominal amount of money. So most people who are vaguely familiar with the U.S. tax system is generally the lower amount of money that you're reporting, the less odds you're going to have of being audited or having a further inquiry into it, right? Because it's kind of small potatoes money from the federal government's perspective from an individual tax return. Plus how many thousands of people are on unemployment, right? But usually any kind of income that's generated, especially by a government entity, filed triggers a specific documentation that's supposed to flow back to the IRS, right? So if you earn money, whether it's from a private company or from a government, you fought, you get a W-2, right, a tax document, which is also reported to the government or a 1099 or some rather various tax documents that the government could say, oh, Keith Jones looks like he earned $1,000 from this company. And then I have similar documentation showing that he owned $1,000 that was also filed by the entity that paid him. 
But I guess our crooks here were banking on the fact that the IRS wasn't looking at every return, especially one from an unemployed person who makes $6,000 a year. It's not worth it. So I think that's what they were banking on here. And uh, it's just an interesting, if not ingenious way, but you can't make a lot of money in a crime of $1,700 in return. But if you do it a thousand times, that's some real money there. Yeah, definitely. All right. And he just continues throughout the year to look up data, get that data, and then do the false tax returns. Now, he has to get the money off the credit cards or the debit cards, the prepaid ones that the IRS sends him. There's a point where the investigators went and looked at the transaction logs for these debit cards, and they found that money was being pulled out of them on ATMs. So the next step in the investigative lead is let's go look at the ATM cameras, right? So we have a picture of the officer actually standing there getting his money out of the ATM. But unfortunately it's probably the grossest black and white picture known to man where you can tell it's a person maybe wearing some sunglasses and a hat and he looks Stout, I mean, large individual, not like a skinny little dude. And that's about all you can tell from him. It looks like (laughs) anime. It's not good. (laughs) I looked and looked and looked on the internet for a nicer color picture because I'm pretty sure there's one out there and I just couldn't find it. So if somebody has it, I would appreciate because I was going to put it in here as like one of the title pictures. And it's probably, it's the ugliest black and white picture, but. Evidence-wise, they have the nice, clear color picture where they can say, ah, this is Mr. Malinsky here taking money out from these credit cards that were gained by fraudulent tax returns. Indeed. October of that year, 2012, Malinsky Bazile is interviewed. So he agrees to cooperate after he was shown the evidence collected against him, and he signed a written confession that he used the Florida Law Enforcement, acronym David, on his police-issued computer to find PII of victims to file false tax returns. He withdrew the money from the prepaid debit cards from the false tax returns. And his search of his residence via consent, they didn't even need to get a court order or a warrant, found ledgers with hundreds of people's PII and prepaid debit card info, which showcases this wasn't like a one-off He was enticed to do this crime thing. This has been probably some kind of racket that he'd been running or involved in for some time. Or it was just enough information that he had to write it all down. I mean, it's like, like you said, if you're getting like a thousand dollars at a time and you got to do it 50 times to make however you're trying to, however much you're trying to make, you got to keep that information somewhere. And apparently it was in the ledger. So we know about a year later, I guess he goes to trial. And the defendant, which is interesting because I don't understand, Keith, if he pled guilty, why would he go to trial? It didn't say like what the motivation was. It basically was in the court paperwork that he did make the confession and then all of a sudden he's going to trial. So Yeah. Usually when you confess, unless it's an enforced, coerced in a confession, you're not going to trial. But he did and he lost. So he was found guilty on seven counts. There was a trafficking and unauthorized access devices or just social security numbers. Only one count of that. I guess they could have been one off, one per, but they guess went with a broader approach. But they got him on aggravated identity theft. That's counts two through five. Got him on fraud and related activity in connection with computers, which is a statutory crime. Got him on six counts of that. And they got him on possession of 15 or more unauthorized access devices, seven of those. And in total... Let's see what his criminal time was here or his jail time. That was count seven. Count seven, excuse me. So he got a pretty hefty duty sentencing here. He was committed to the custody of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons for 144 months. And that is consisting of 120 months or 10 years if you're counting to count one. And then 120 months as to count seven, but those were run concurrently and 60 months to count six. So all those were served concurrently. And there was an additional 24 months to additional counts, also served concurrently, but consecutively to the terms imposed. So he actually got an additional, so he got 
100 yeah so you got 120 months plus an additional 24 months so that brings him to 144 months so he's doing about 12 years here which is quite a lot and on top of that he's got to have three years of supervised release and on top of that he has some substance abuse treatment i'm not sure why they threw that in there unless it was an issue but he'll spend the better part of the next 12 years in prison on this which is rough and on this one we did see an assessment of 700 dollars de minimis, but a restitution of $140,000. So he'll have that over his head. I'm not sure how he gets to pay that back. So that was officer two. We have the third officer who is Vital Frederick. Now, he has actually a couple of schemes going on. He's also a Miami-Dade, Florida police officer. And his first scheme and I just thought this isn't necessarily a electronic crime thing, but he had two schemes. So we're going to talk about the first one too. His first scheme was protection of illegal activity. And I was like, all right, what is this about? Read right into it a little further. And between August and September of 2012, he provided protection for cash for illicit activity. He was told this illicit activity was a check cashing place. This establishment that he was protecting and they were cashing quote unquote dirty checks from a courier. He was also told that the check cashing store owner takes a cut from the scheme. He was told that the courier would not use the store unless there was police protection. Frederick was told the courier had about 40 to 50 K worth of checks with him. And then he was like, yep, I'm in sign me up. Frederick agreed to participate several times and he was there in uniform and a marked car and he parked next door at a gas station. So to now this here, is, this guy's job was just to sit in his car in a cop car to make it look like it was a safe environment for the courier to come by and basically sell dirty checks to the check cashing company. That's batshit crazy yep. to me. I guess it's cheap money. Yep. If you're a cop, you look the other way. Grab a few hundred bucks. Interesting. Yeah. And it's all police trying to catch police. So they're set. It's. They're investigating Frederick. This isn't a real scenario at this point. Yeah. It's like the confidential informants that we saw in the other police officer stories. So Frederick's other scheme was ID theft. This brings us back to the e-crime bites, the E part of it. So while investigating the first scheme, investigators found a second one. And like with Bazile, the FBI sent a confidential informant to ask Frederick, hey, you want to make some money? And that was around October of 2012. So the first meeting, Frederick provided 14 names for $200, which was much more efficient than the prior guy, than Mr. Bazile. Yeah, Frederick sold himself short, by the way. Later, we found out that he sold 38 for 400 bucks. Clearly, he wasn't interested in math. The CI or confidential informant told Frederick about the fraudulent tax refund scheme. So record, records show that Frederick accessed the PII in a law enforcement only database similar to Bazile. It's almost like they were following a script here. Yeah, but unfortunately, they didn't talk to each other and say, hey, how much are you making per name? Because right. this guy is only getting a couple hundred dollars for about the same amount of names. So on January 7th of 2013, investigators, they came in and they interviewed Frederick. And what does he do? He goes, yep, it was me. I was providing protection for a check cashing store and escorting their courier with fraudulent checks for cash payments. That was a quote. I'm just kidding. It wasn't a quote, but that's what he admitted to. And then he also admitted to providing two lists of PII to these informants. He also admitted to knowing that the PII was going to be used for illegal purposes of making fraudulent tax returns. So this, this is the part that blew my mind in this week's episode, which was how much did he admit to making on all this? And before I give you the number, at first I pondered this and I was like, do you round up to sound like you really, you're really good at your job. Do you go, Hey, I made a hundred thousand dollars when you only made a thousand dollars or do you round down and you say, 
I only made $200 when I actually made $1,000. I couldn't figure out what I would do or what he would do in this case. But I will tell you, he ended up saying that he took in $1,400 for this whole scheme. And I was like, okay, that sucks. He only made $1,400. But the positive note is he did not get it in Amazon gift cards like Luke Steiner <laughs> in our previous episode. Yeah, some would argue that gift cards are better because then you can get whatever you want on Amazon. Who wants cash? I don't know. That's crazy shit to me. You're basically going down the river for such a small amount of money. Um, yeah. So there's a superseding indictment here, basically meaning there were other indictments and this came forward and over overtakes them here. There's seven counts. You got interference with commerce by extortion where counts one through four. There is count five, which is access device fraud, which is usually like owning some kind of username, password, or some kind of like social security number or something along those lines, or like the ATM card. And then counts six and seven were aggravated identity theft. So he goes to trial. Found guilty on all seven counts. So let's see what he got. So he was committed to 81 months. So that breaks down to 57 months for the first counts and then another 24 on some other ones. And some were consecutive, some were concurrent, but it totals 81 months, which is not a small amount of time, right? What is that? Seven years, eight years? For fucking $1,400. Oh my God. That's so much time for that little amount of money. And I don't mean to belittle $1,400, but when you throw your life, any career, any career at all, it seems like it would be worth more than $1,400. And that's what he threw away. And he's going to prison for 81 months. Just, yeah, astounding to me that somebody would be so silly to throw their life away for that amount of money. So supervised release was pretty standard. We had three years on that. And then we had the monetary penalties and we don't have a restitution, but we do have a $700 assessment. And then we have a six, almost a $1,700 fine. Now it's interesting. I think that might be the highest statutory fine we've seen in any of our cases, Keith. Usually the fine is a thousand, two thousand $2,000, which is just probably a way out of date number that has been added to a statute. So to see something that high is interesting to me. Now there is a star on it, but I'm not sure if we have any details on it, but I'm not sure if it was because he was a police officer and abuse of power, but that's interesting to me that the fine is so high. And that's it. That's our three police officers and our three schemes. Actually four ish, if you count the one that wasn't electronic. So what did we learn in this? And I hope we drill this home, but if you listen to more and more of our episodes. I hope we drill home that criminals come in every profession. Okay. Here it's law enforcement. You're going to see in an episode or two, we're going to have a Navy officer. We talked about a Navy engineer previously. We have a, a department of transportation lawyer coming up in a couple episodes. It doesn't matter. It seems like you pick a profession. There's going to be somebody there that's going to be a criminal and they're going to be it's almost every profession also touches electronic crime when they're a criminal too. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here. I think in every case we've seen here, there has to be an insider, right? And uh, it gets to the very heart of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis for internal investigations. And it doesn't mean that we don't trust people. It doesn't mean people are inherently bad. People do things for various reasons financially. I'm really actually not trying to judge them, although we do make a lot of jokes on this. But the point is, you know, when you have inside information, there's like a responsibility to handle it responsibly and ethically. And I guess that's ultimately the crux of these cases, which is the lure of money can overwhelm that. And even law enforcement, we're certainly not denigrating law enforcement for those of you who are in law enforcement listening. We did show there were multiple officers participating, though, in a similar ID theft scheme, specifically on focusing on fraudulent tax returns. I found that easy not easy, interesting, because I guess for a lot of people, they look at it as a kind of a victimless crime, right? You're, yeah, you're taking money out of taxpayers' hands, but that's indirectly, right? Ultimately, if the government shells out another 1200 bucks to somebody, after all the money we spend in our budget for military spending and whatever kind of spending, I can see how one could argue, well, you know, it's what's, what's another $1,200 here and there. Not that I'm out. I think the biggest damage to the victims would be 
unfucking your taxes after someone tried to fraudulently file yeah. on top of yours. Because there's probably going to be a period of time where you have to talk to the IRS. Just the legwork and doing anything with the IRS is horrible. So just the legwork of having to untangle your tax history, if someone were to fraudulently file in your name because they picked you out of a driver's license database, I think is just the biggest impact. I wonder when they filed the returns, though, what was the parity from like the actual regular return? Maybe for some people that were incarcerated, for those people, it'd be different because if they're incarcerated, they're probably not filing a return. Even if they received unemployment funds, unless you can actually can receive unemployment while you're incarcerated. So I can see how that could confuse the IRS agents, which is, you know, Keith Jones, incarcerated, $600, whatever, it's fine. They wouldn't even know you're incarcerated. I'm not sure how they'd have that record. But if it's somebody else that came from that David Department of Transportation, basically some rando dude who has a car, right? That's how they got that information. That person probably did file a tax return. So was the tax return in the same address? If you got a call from the IRS saying, hey, why did you file two returns? You're like, I didn't file two returns. Yes, you did. You know, I mean, I just don't know what level of analysis is being done at the IRS, but you have to wonder if they have some processes in place to look for differences between different year returns versus same year returns that are duplicative. And I don't know, I wouldn't put it past the IRS to not having that fully locked down. But anyway, at the point is you see how easy ID theft can be, right? And more importantly, how easy it would be to trip up a victim like the IRS who it may take them years to untangle something like that. And as a, if you're assuming you're a victim being you're one of the people picked out of that database and someone fraudulently filed in your name. I sat there and I was like, how can you protect yourself from this? And I couldn't really think of anything because the victims were picked from databases. It's not like you can take yourself out of that database. If you're into the Department of Corrections database, you're there because against your will, because you're in custody. And if you're in the driver's license database, your information's in there mandatory wise, because it's a driver's license database. So there's nothing that a layman I, that I can imagine, like all the other things we say, Hey, patch your devices or put stronger passwords on your account or use two factor authentication. I don't have anything for this type of crime where I can say, do this and you will be more protected. Unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. It's a tough one, right? It gets to the whole insider thing. You're at their mercy. But I would say keep, they say generally keep your tax records for seven years, right? Unfortunately, especially if you do your tax returns electronically, like most people do these days, keep an electronic copy of it. It's not like it's taking up physical space in your, in your desk drawer kind of thing. And that way they're like, you'll know what you filed. I know how many times you filed it. And then I think the last piece, this cop Frederick threw his life away for $1,400. We thought the guy Steiner was... Maybe the biggest loser here for throwing his wife away for $11,000 in Gamazon gift cards. This is worse. It's just, it's, it's hard to digest that somebody went into law enforcement ostensibly for the right reasons, but throw all the way down the drain for 1400 bucks. Yeah. And I had to go back. I didn't have to. I went back and kept checking the numbers because I thought I missed a zero or something. Yeah. And I was like, why is this payout so much less? than everybody's else. And what are you going to do when you're a criminal and you come up with your agreement with your other criminals? And then even we were talking about earlier about being shorted is what are you going to do? You're not going to call the cops. First of all, you are the cops and there's no other cops that's going to enforce it. So it's kind of like you get what you get and you hope you make money on it. All right. Yeah. So with that, let me just tell you about how to reach us. Our website is the main place you want to go. It's just eCrimeBytes, E-C. R-I-M-E-B-Y is in yellow milk. Yellow milk. T-E-S.com. Real quick, Seth, my brother, you're going to want to stick around for this joke. My brother texted me the other day. He's really into cheeses. My brother and I, we are the frozen milk guys, right? So this relates, trust me. He texted me and said, I found some awesome Amish cheese that I want to try. He's really into cheeses. Later on, I get a text that said, oh my God, it was butter and not cheese. 
And my response to my brother was, I bet you that butter still tasted better than frozen yellow milk. And he said, indeed. (laughs) Yeah, in fucking deed. Yeah, if you go to our website, eatcrimebites.com, all our social media, podcasting apps, everything is linked on there. Uh, If you want to see the videos, you can get that across the top. If you're on your phone, it's actually a little drop down instead of being on the top. It's this little hamburger three line looking thing on the right upper corner. Click on that, and then you're going to have all these links that I'm talking about. Please, 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 if you get a chance, subscribe to your podcast on whatever your favorite podcasting app is. And please, please, please leave us a positive review on whatever that is. That helps other people that haven't heard of us before start to see us, and then we get a bigger audience. So everybody wins. All right. We appreciate that. And do you have anything else before I send us out, Seth? No, no. Who knew that fraudulent tax returns would be such an interesting topic of conversation? Just uh, we appreciate you guys listening. Uh, it means a lot to us. We find this to be a cathartic use of our time, and we hope you do as well. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. And next week, let me give you a little preview because we're coming to the end of our first season, which I just arbitrarily made a half a year long. And our next episode is going to be another tax fraud return episode, but a much much grander scale than we looked at here. And then we're going to be looking at a couple who cyber stocks together. And this one was really interesting because it was a Navy officer who ends up being a giant shitbag, stalking his ex-wife. And you go, you get through it and you're like, oh my God, this guy is just a giant shitbag. And then a, like a significant other moves in with him and helps him. So now there's two giant shitbags cyber stalking together, his ex-wife. And it's one of the most crazy stories that I've heard of. And then after that, we will have a nice season review. So we hope to see you on all those episodes soon. And we look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thanks. Bye. 